Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 1, verse 20 to 25 this afternoon. I guess that um, when we think about our identity, who we are as people, we're delving into something which is, is really one of the kind of hot-button issues. Lots of people are talking today about who we are, who I am, what is my identity. And of course, those identities, for all of us, are diverse. We all come with different identities this afternoon. We've arrived with different identities, uh, different issues, different experiences, different contexts, different backgrounds, different race. All of those different things have shaped the identity of the people that we are. And yet at the same time, one of the, one of the things that uh, human beings have always thought about and considered is that in some sense... Our identity isn't something that we've created ourselves. There has always been that ongoing search, consideration, and understanding that our identity is somehow seen in and reflected to us in the idea of the divine, the idea in, of the supernatural the idea of some sort of greater power and greater authority. If you look at every culture in human history, what we find throughout time is there has been some sort of ongoing search or understanding for who we are in the light of God, however we define God or that greater being. Really, our particular context in history is a relatively short context in, in real terms. We are, I guess, for many of us here this afternoon, we would hear that and we'd say, not sure about that. Because I, I'm pretty convinced that my identity is uh, molecules uh, and electrical charges, and all of those things which go on to make me as a being of matter. And when I die, that's all I am. Because we are, for all of us, we are children of the science project. We are children who are convinced, for many of us, that we are only what we can see and touch. And yet we all find that somehow dissatisfying, don't we? We all find that somehow unreasonable, particularly in the face of the most dramatic and incredible events and most painful and challenging events in our human experience. We cannot feel satisfied with the idea that we are only just a mass of chemicals for most of us in the face of the most challenging of adversities. And so the question that we are faced with is what kind of distinct identity does the Christian faith present to us? 
How do we understand who we are in relation to what the Bible describes, what God through His Word describes to us? We're reminding ourselves that this letter was written to a group of churches spread in different parts of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, the strip of land really that sits between Europe and Asia. And this group of people had a heritage, an identity which was clear to them that they were by identity and heritage Jewish, but they were living in a context which was very, to use the word, modern. They were in the thick of it. They were in one of the important areas in the Roman Empire, huge trading routes, significant things going on. So although they carried this Jewish identity, they were also sat in the middle of what it was to be living in the world with all of excitement and opportunity of that day. And yet at the same time, something had happened to them. They had been confronted by the message of Jesus and they were compelled by that message so much so that their identity was changed. They were new people. They weren't what they once were. They were new. They were changed. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them to understand how that identity is formed and shaped in the face of the God who has revealed Himself to us. It's, it's continuing with that, that idea of understanding us in relation to God rather than just understanding us how we decide to construct our own ideas. If there is a God, if there is a greater being, then He has the right, He has the authority to define who we are. To say, this is who you are in relation to me. And Peter is very clear in these verses in continuing to build up this case for who we are as believers in Jesus. The first thing that we're going to see is that our identity is wrapped up in association. Association. Look what it says in verse 20. Verse 20. He was chosen. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. What is, who is he talking about when he says he? Well, it's talking about Jesus. All the way through, he's been describing the relationship that the believers have in Jesus. In Him who hey, He, or we could read it this way, Jesus has been, uh, was chosen before the creation of the world. Jesus was revealed in these last times for your sake. So we're, that's the statement that he's making. Think about that for a minute. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Jesus, the first statement that he's making, is eternally divine. So straight away he's saying, 
you're on to something. You know you're right. We do understand who we are in relation to the idea of God, but we don't have to sit back and we don't have to try to work it out. We don't have to decide about this and about that. We actually understand God in relation to God who is revealed to us. The divine eternal being who was chosen before the creation of the world has been revealed to us. He's appeared. That's one of the foundations of the Christian faith. God has made himself visible. The eternal dimension before creation. Jesus was planned by his salvation work to be revealed to us. Think about that for a minute. It was already in the mind of God that he was going to show himself to us. Not not once we'd rebelled. Even before he had created the world. God had determined that he was going to reveal himself to us. Because he was very clear that to know him is life. And therefore, when we break the opportunity to know Him, He had purposed before He'd even created this world that He was going to show Himself to us. Through Him, you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him and so your faith and hope are in God. So this God who has revealed Himself This God who had planned to reveal Himself even before He created the world had planned to reveal what kind of God He was. When it says there um, that He was chosen, chosen before the creation, chosen for what? In the mind of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this plan of revealing what God is like was, was determined before the world was even created, and that plan was that Jesus would be revealed and that the very central aspect of the work of Jesus, His death on the cross and His resurrection again, would tell us what kind of God God is like. In other words, He's saying, you want to know what I'm like? This is the kind of God I am. I'm the kind of God that is prepared before I even create a world. I'm prepared to show that I am a merciful, sacrificing of my own self, servant-like, gracious, glorious God. That's what I am like. And I want you to know that that's what I am like. God had determined that But more than that, we can sit back, we could say, well, that's really interesting. That's what God's like. That's great. We understand now that God's the kind of God who comes and and dies on a cross and, and is the kind of God who sacrifices himself. So what? Peter goes on and he says, but your relationship to that God is not just one of observation, it is one of association. 
Through him, you believe in God. That's how we know God, through Jesus, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so, your faith and hope are in God. My faith and hope are in Jesus, (laughs) because he was the one who came and sacrificed himself. And Peter says, yes, and your hope is in God. Because when your hope is in Jesus, your hope is in God. Do you see the way he's using the language of God to determine in our minds and make sure that we understand when he says that he was chosen before, we're not saying that he wasn't God. We're saying that he was God. He was chosen in that divine, glorious, mysterious trinity of beautiful agreement between Father and Son and Spirit, he says, this is what we're going to do in the one person of God, and (laughs) when you trust in Him, you're trusting in God. The Greeks understood. They understood the idea that somehow the gods, this myriad of gods that they had, We're just distant. That's not good enough. Somehow the gods needed to become personal. And so there were certain gods that had become human. The divine had become human. And yet that causes a problem, doesn't it? Because as soon as the divine just becomes human... They're just that. They're just human. And so the other ideas of how we might understand God, how we might construct this idea of God, tend to swing the other way and say somehow God is spirit and distant and unattainable and unachievable and so holy and separate from us that somehow we can't we can't attain to that God. Somehow we've got to try and reach out to the, the God who's separate from us. And that's no good either. Do you see the genius, the beyond human creativity of this idea of the plan of salvation that God has constructed? <laughs> You're right. You need a God who is somehow connected, associated. You need to relate truly to that God. But that God can't lose His identity in His divinity because then He loses all of His glory and power. We need both. And it is only the Christian faith which presents to us, which reveals to us the idea that God has had that idea even before he created the world. The idea that God is both human and divine, presented to us, truly human, yet truly divine. And that's where we see that our hope can be in that divine God. Because he raised him from the dead. And therefore, us, mortal human beings, by association can have hope in Jesus. So the first thing that we see is our identity is wrapped up in hope in Jesus. Association with Him. 
The second thing that we see is that our identity has consequence. Look at what we go on to read. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting in lots of ways. It's interesting that Peter decides that having described this glory of God, he then moves on to the consequence for us, which is love for each other. Why? Why is that a natural step? Well, the first statement that we would say is that it's a natural step because it's defining in our identity, what God is like. He Himself is a God of love. This divine being who presents Himself in human form and yet agrees in Trinitarian agreement before the creation of the world, there is an unbreakable love that exists within God. I make something really clear to you. I, I believe that the Bible makes it really clear that God is not missing out on love. And therefore, He creates human beings so He's got some love coming back to Him. God is totally, totally satisfied in His own love for Himself, expressed in the relationships of the person of the Trinity. God is totally satisfied in that. But what He decides to do, as though that love is contained within Himself, but is so overwhelmingly beautiful that it kind of floods out of Him, and is expressed in flooding out to us. He invites us to be partakers in that love. That makes the love of God a cultural reversal. In this way, we love people because they have expressed love to us. There's something about them, you know, however it happened, that first moment, there is something, it might have not started off very well actually, but there's some turning point at some point where love becomes recognized. There's something that's given off that we respond to and we say, okay, that's happened now and therefore I'll take the step. And love grows and forms but we always respond in love because we've received something. The difference in God is that He loves before we've ever expressed anything in His direction. And that is what Peter is calling, by consequence, that is what Peter is calling those who believe in Jesus 
to act out in this world. Look at what he says. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, in other words, you've taken that step of, be, of believing and obeying Jesus so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. What, 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 why say that twice? Why say it twice? Because you love... Love one another deeply. Quite simply because of this. Because love can be something which is, if you like it, is positional. I I love you because of the relationship that we exist in. I am part of something, family perhaps, Connectedness, perhaps. And therefore, I positionally love you. But just because I'm in that, doesn't mean that I show it. And so he's saying, because you are in it, you'd better show it. Don't make love a a kind of, Logical statement. That's not love, is it? Well, it, it can be. It's a statement of. It's it's a statement which is genuine. But what he's saying is, translate that to something that floods out. Something which is seen. Love from the heart is something that works its way out. It it has action. It has consequence. There's things that we do because we love each other. The word that he uses here is interesting. It's the word Philadelphia. Well, it's derivative of that word. Philadelphia. What an interesting word. Philadelphia was actually a city in Asia Minor. It was the city of brotherly love. Philos, or philo, love. Greek word for love. Adelphos, brotherly. That's where the word comes from. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, Asia Minor, the city of brotherly love. As soon as he uses that word, some of these hearers would think, I was there last week. I was in a city which declaring that. Now, quite, he's saying, do you, do you live in the city of brotherly love? Do you dwell in, with Philadelphia as part of your identity? Is that how we live? Do we see that I'm part of this kingdom? By believing in Jesus, I've become a member of the kingdom of heaven. But, But that kingdom has a particular identity. It has an identity of sibling love. 
sibling love. Not every family, not every sibling relationship expresses love correctly and appropriately. You might have experienced that just because you've experienced the wrong kind of sibling love doesn't mean that the Bible isn't going to present to us right sibling love. And it does, because our big brother, Jesus, died for us. He gave everything. Our elder brother died, sacrificed himself. That is Philadelphos, isn't it? isn't it? And therefore, live dwelling in that kind of city. Wouldn't it be great? It would be great. But more than just being great, it would be absolutely appropriate if Christchurch Escape was known and seen and understood as a place of sibling love for people who are family here. That isn't an option. It's a responsibility. It's something which we give first and receive second because that's what Jesus did. So often, we can be discouraged, we can be downhearted, we can say, just didn't work out, didn't, didn't receive that love the way, the way it really, I felt I should. And therefore, I'm not going to love back. I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't think like that. I'm so thankful that He loves first overwhelmingly, compellingly. He keeps on loving until there's no choice but to love back with a compelling, overwhelming sibling love. Thirdly, the nature of our relationship, the nature of our identity is enduring. It's by association, it has consequences, but it's enduring. Look at what he goes on to say. You've been born again. It's a phrase which is just so, in one sense, overused, that we lose the significance of it. Jesus said to an incredibly proficient capable, able, religious leader. You've got to be born again to enter into my kingdom. And that leader, when he first heard it, was blown away by the idea. How can I possibly enter again into my mother's womb? I just can't be born again. I can't be. It's impossible. And Jesus says, it is impossible in human terms. You can't. 
but with God everything's possible. And you can be born into that family by the power of the Spirit of God. And that kind of being born again, as he says, is not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. The word that he's using there, it's not perishable seed. He's using the idea of human fertilization. It's going back to exactly the idea that that Nicodemus was struggling with. How can I be born again? Well, it's not perishable birth. It's imperishable. It's spirit birth. Because you see, ordinary human fertilization and reproduction produces ordinary human people. And all people are like grass. All ordinary human beings are like grass. And their glory is like the flowers of the field. I I think that's actually quite an amazing acknowledgement that the Bible uses of quoting an Old Testament reference there. Saying, there is a sense in which there is a momentary glory in human beings. Let's not live with this kind of down on us kind of idea. There is something which momentarily sprouts up and shines and, and appears. But you know, it's like the glory of the flower in the field. That is a breathtaking sight if you're into that kind of thing. Some of you might really love the idea of driving through fields and looking out on that beautiful scenery and wax lyrical about yellows and lavenders and all of that kind of thing. It just causes hay fever to me. But you know, it's beautiful. But it's momentary, isn't it? It's there for a while. The beauty is momentary. And then it's gone. It's passing. But the kind of glory that is forged by relationship in Jesus is imperishable. It doesn't break up. It doesn't decay. It doesn't fall apart. And it is forged, it is forged by God revealing Himself to us. I love the way Peter concludes these, this thought. He, he knits together the idea by quoting the Old Testament, the written Word of God. He knits together the idea of the written Word of God with the Word of God in Jesus which was revealed. Bringing the two together. In other words, he's saying that what we've got here, written down in human text, in English, translated for us, is the ongoing work of God in revealing Himself to us through His Word. Now a guy who's translating the Bible at the moment into Mongolian. And he's struggling with various words. But behind that, the fact that he's, he's translating it into a language for an ordinary people of the day, 
behind all of that is the ongoing work of God's Holy Spirit ensuring that words are secured for our understanding of God revealing Himself to us, but pointing and directing us to Jesus who was revealed to us. In other words, Jesus is the work of God, and this is the work of God. They're both God's work revealing Himself to us. The Word declared, the speech, the act of God, enduring, never broken, continuing against all human opposition. Because he says this, the word of the Lord endures forever. I had a conversation a few weeks ago about um, the nature of the Bible. And the conversation went along the lines of, well, what if we found something else that was written by one of the apostles or or maybe, what about looking at the other way? What if we somehow lost the Bible? If you've seen the book, the book of Eli, it's based on that idea. It's based on the idea of the Bible being lost. It's just kind of preserved by one person. Do you know what? It'll never be lost. It'll never be lost. Because it will endure forever. Because it is written and tied up and in some sense almost of the same kind of quality as Jesus himself. Who is declared in this word. And it is imperishable. Some of you might have seen the TV series that's on at the moment, uh, Grayson Perry is doing a fascinating documentary producing portraits of different people under the banner, Who Am I? It's all about identity. And uh, the the one that really moved me, I guess because of human experience, our own personal experience, is where he was Um, producing a portrait of a couple where the husband was experiencing dementia. And the question that he was really getting under the skin of was, what is identity when our identity in human terms seems to be breaking down? The portrait was eventually one of his iconic Uh, pottery pieces. He called it memory jar. On the front was the couple, kind of shrouded by a blanket, hiding themselves away from this frenetic demon with a pair of scissors in his hand who was chopping up pictures of their past symbolizing that idea of my identity being chopped up into little tiny pieces. If all that we are is in the here and now, then he is absolutely right. He is. He is right. 
Our identity can be chopped up and it can be shattered and it can be blown away to the four corners of the earth so that we no longer exist in being. But this says, no matter what happens, no matter what happens in human form, my spiritual identity, the very me, even if in years to come, you might not recognize me as me. I might not recognize me as me. I don't look to be me anymore. Let me tell you that this says, my identity in Jesus is imperishable. It cannot be broken. It cannot be chopped into little pieces and disturbed and distributed. I need that. You need that. Which is why Peter is so insistent that our identity is forged not in our own human experience, but it is forged in relation to the eternal God. Because it is in Him that I have my eternal identity. It is in Him that I have my eternal security.